Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Dr. Rashmi Shram, the board-certified family physician and a certified integrative health coach and meditation teacher. Is it possible for someone to become more emotionally resilient? 100%, yes. First, it starts with awareness. And if we were to say we are only products of our societal conditioning, then it would be almost like we're taught, depending on what your formal education was, to just stuff everything down. Don't worry about it, don't feel it. And so then we end up spending enormous amounts of energy, keeping ourselves distracted, keeping ourselves so busy that we don't have to deal with the emotions. But on the other hand, when there's some awareness of this is uncomfortable, this is discomfort, if we even allow ourselves to feel that, it actually takes some of the power for the emotional charge out immediately. And that's really what mindfulness is. It is Mm -hmm. the awareness. And so once you have the awareness, then you have the power to take the next step and the next step. And a lot of people describe emotional freedom or emotional resilience as being a tunnel. And we have to go through the tunnel in order to come out. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit, and hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility fad, fact, or fiction. Here's the latest from Dr. Shala. Today, we are really lucky that I have Dr. Rashmi Shram leading us in a guided meditation today. So if you are driving, you're going to want to save this segment for another time. If you're out walking, you want to be at home for this, so you can come back to it another time. So thank you, Dr. Shram, for being here and guiding us in this meditation today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. As you are ready, go ahead and sit in a comfortable position. I usually recommend having some support for your back if you're able. Having your feet just on the ground, perhaps not crossed. And when you're ready, just very gently close your eyes. And with your hands on your lap, let's just begin by taking a few deeper breaths. And with each exhalation, just letting go of anything that's no longer serving you. Just allowing it to go. Now just gently putting your attention on your breath without trying to alter it in any way. Just noticing the in-breath, the pause, 
Yeah, breath. If you find that your mind has wandered, you've done nothing wrong, gently return back to your breath. Now I'll introduce today's mantra. Today's mantra is so hum. Still keeping your eyes closed, just gently and effortlessly begin to silently repeat. So on the in-breath, Hum on the opera. So on the in breath. Hum on the up. Continue to easily and effortlessly repeat the mantra. So hum. And I'll mind the time. Your mind has wandered, just gently returning back to so hum. That's dropping the shoulders a bit, relaxing the jaw. Still keeping your eyes closed, you can gently release the mantra. Just rest. Just rest in being. I want you to silently repeat. These four intentions for living a happy, healthy, harmonious life. Just gently drop these seeds of intention into your being as I say them. Joyful, energetic, healthy body.
loving, compassionate, open heart. Reflective, alert, peaceful mind. Lightness of being. And now begin to take a few deeper breaths. Coming back to the body. Perhaps wiggling the toes. the palms of your hand together at the level of your heart and bring in a deep sense of gratitude for yourself for creating this space in your very busy life. Gratitude for the many blessings in your life. When you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. Namaste. Wonderful. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I love guided meditations. I know everybody has a different experience. In my personal experience, I feel like I really feel a deep relaxation when I do the guided a lot more than when I'm trying on my own. And perhaps it's just a little bit of inexperience. But that's my personal experience. And so I really encourage anyone to start and listen. And you said you have a lot of videos that are available on YouTube. Yeah, I have several for people to start with. That's a great place to start for those who are new because it's so easy for me to listen to your voice and be relaxed and just pay attention to your words. I feel really just pulled along the journey as opposed to me sitting there and trying to figure out, like focusing just on my breath and all that. That's just my experience. I think it's a totally valid and very common experience. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I have spoken about meditation and mindfulness before in this podcast, and it's something I also discuss with my patients. Unfortunately, I think those who are new to meditation can often become discouraged and don't continue the practice and never really able to get the full benefits of the practice. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Dr. Rashmi Shram, who's going to help those who are new to meditation learn how to start the practice or continue the practice if they are discouraged. Dr. Shram is a board-certified family physician and a certified integrative health coach and meditation teacher. She is the founder of Optimal Wellness, where she incorporates evidence-based meditation techniques into her individual and group coaching programs. Dr. Shram helps busy women to ditch guilt and tap into inner peace and power so they can live more energetic and purposeful lives. Welcome, Dr. Shram. Thank you so much, Dr. Shala. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. I really wanted to dive a little bit deeper into this topic because, as I said, I've mentioned it before and I mention it a lot to my patients, but I think sometimes it can feel really overwhelming. Like, how do I start? I think a lot of people envision meditation as I'm just supposed to sit somewhere and just meditate. 
And a lot of people are discouraged because I can't do that. I'm not going to be able to sit still. All these thoughts are going to be going to my head. So there's a lot of misconceptions about meditation. So I wanted to make sure that we bring you on to just help us with all those misconceptions. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became passionate about meditation? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in India. I lived there with a very large extended family until I was about 12 or so. And I was exposed basically every day to meditation, to spirituality, and felt very comfortable. It felt like home for me. And we immigrated to the U.S. when I was 12 and really lost track of all of that. Just as an adolescent, trying to fit in, trying to lose all my Indianness, if, if you will. And then I went off to college and rediscovered meditation. In fact, actually initially really discovered meditation. There was a group of people that I was volunteering with. And we actually not just got deep into meditation, but we also learned how to teach meditation to other students and things like that. And so I was really, I would say a daily meditator almost in college, but I was doing it in a closeted way because I was this pre-med student and I didn't think it fit the mold. And then I started medical school again, lost all aspects of meditation, lost my community and through training and things like that, didn't meditate at all. And then fast forward to about 10, 12 years ago, I was in a slow churn burnout mode of just high stress levels. My husband's a physician. We were both working really long hours and I had really no good tools, I realize now, for mm -hmm. stress relief. Right. <laughs> and so I was noticing a lot of anxiety for myself. So I was suffering from anxiety. And then, of course, that bled right into insomnia. And you can combine those two. Then I started to have some digestive issues and then chronic daily migraines. And this just continued on. And I wasn't finding relief with our traditional medicines. Mm -hmm. And even as a physician, I wasn't finding relief. And just one day I woke up and I was like, why don't you just try meditation? This used to help you before. Mm -hmm. And so I just started dipping my toes in and it helped my, actually my anxiety initially, and then my migraines. And so I noticed that if I were to spend a little bit more time in this, that I was getting a lot out of it. And of course, because I didn't have a big community of meditators or anything, I was almost like a crisis meditator. So I would right. meditate, I would get better, and then I would forget about it. And then I would do the same thing. It was like this cyclical mm -hmm. thing for a couple of years. And then finally, a few years ago, I just said, this is silly. Let me just double down on this, see what shows up for me, uh, because it really felt very comfortable for me during my meditation practices. And so that's how my meditation journey started. Once I got deep into it a few years ago, I started to just unofficially teach it you know, just my office staff and like mm -hmm. my friends and things like that. And and then I people would ask me to go teach. And for me, it just felt like I want the certifications. I want the tests. I want people to test me on this. <laughs> and then I went back and I got a couple of certifications to, to be able to teach meditation. And I love it. I love the transformation that mm -hmm. I see in my students. It's incredible. I want to comment on what you said about a crisis meditator. I think that's interesting because it almost mirrors what we're taught in conventional medicine. We're like treating symptoms, right? So you were almost using what you've used so long in family medicine is this that you're just treating the symptoms rather than taking care of it along the way. And we don't take care of ourselves along the way. We go to see our doctors most of the time when we have a problem or something we need to treat. So I think that's really interesting. Oh, yeah. I think that's the trap we can all fall into is being inconsistent. Yeah. It's interesting also that we don't really 
look at all these things that we could be doing, I think that the majority of physicians who are in integrative or functional practice end up having our own health issues and we can't help ourselves with the conventional practice. And then realizing how much lifestyle practice and how much those other things that may seem insignificant, how significant they are and how helpful they can be. That's exactly right. I I had to solve the problem for myself first. And then once you see it and you see the power of it, I imagine that was something that was so eye-opening for you working with patients. Yeah, it really was. And I was showing up better too. We try not to take anything into the exam Mm -hmm. room, of course, and I don't think I was, but I was maybe like more irritable If I wasn't feeling well, how could I not be more irritable? But really just the way that I showed up for everything and everybody was changing. Yeah. And did it change your practice at the time with patients? I mean, I know it's really difficult in conventional practice to bring a lot of these things in, but did it change your practice in any way? It did. So I struggled with that 15-minute time frame. I was in a traditional family medicine practice. And what I then figured out was I could do these free sessions at the neighboring like YMCA. And so I started to do those and kind of send my patients out that way to come meditate with me. Mm -hmm. And that was how I figured out a circuitous route to help my patients. But now, of course, we have you know, we have like podcasts like this mm-hmm. and we have YouTube channels and things that I wasn't necessarily incorporating into my practice back then. Yeah. And we have a lot more resources, which we'll get into at the end, that we can use that help. But yeah, it's unfortunate that sometimes there are a lot of things I know that, and that's why I have this podcast, because I want to be able to share things that people can be doing at home that can help them And I'm not here to knock conventional medicine. Of course, most of my practice is conventional, but what else can we add to help people? So a real basic question is why should we meditate? Yeah, that's a great question. Is it okay if I define meditation? Sure. We skip that part. So meditation, the way I see it is incredibly simple. It is just the journey from activity to stillness. It's a formal way to practice mindfulness. And the way that most people would say, uh, agree on mindfulness definition is the awareness that arises when we are paying attention to this present moment without judgment and with curiosity. So it is a formal way to strengthen our mindfulness practice. And so when we understand what it is that we're talking about, then we can understand why it could be a benefit for us. In terms of a simple way to look at how meditation can benefit us, I usually think of the autonomic nervous system to start with, right? So most of the time, because I would say everybody listening to this podcast, you and I included, tend to probably live in that sympathetic overload, that fight or flight drive, because we're generally overworked, we're generally overdoing. And even before the pandemic, there was chronic daily stress. And so Mm -hmm. the pandemic, of course, made all of that worse. And so what meditation can do very deliberately and rather quickly is move us from that sympathetic fight or flight over into the parasympathetic rest and restore response. And you can imagine many of the physiological changes that take place very quickly, and then also that add up from there. Just a few of the benefits, and even first-time meditators are lowered blood pressure, lower heart rate. We're not trying to control the respiratory rate, but it naturally goes down as well. And then blood flow begins to change as well. So when we're in a fight or flight, we're not really worried about reproduction. We're not worried about the GI tract. And then think about what happens in the brain. We're in the sympathetic nervous system. 
a lot of the energy is spent and blood flow is spent just trying to survive. And so that is much more significant blood flow within that limbic system, the hypothalamus, the kind of the reptilian brain, if you will. And it isn't that the prefrontal cortex or the parent brain goes offline, but in a way it does go offline. And so when we meditate, we actually have more access to the prefrontal cortex, which is where we have access to the intellect and creativity. And so we move from that sympathetic over into that parasympathetic response. Over time, we see decreased inflammatory markers. We see that the brain physiology itself changes, not just the blood flow, but it physically looks different. There's more gray matter in the prefrontal cortex. There are better connections, neuronal connections. And then we also see what's really cool is neuropeptide changes in meditators within Mm. just about three weeks or so. So we see increases in serotonin, endogenous serotonin by 35, 40%. And this has been reproducible in multiple studies. We also see dopamine increase. And these things stay up, by the way. It isn't just a one-time thing. And so the longer we meditate, the more of these benefits we see. And those are just a few of the, like, the tip of the iceberg benefits. When you're talking about the improvement in our neurotransmitters, it must be that it's going to improve our mental health. There's just a no-brainer that we're going to see improvement in mental health. Not to say that you don't need medication, but there are a lot of us that are dealing with daily anxiety or some mild depressive symptoms that maybe don't need to have medication where something like a meditation practice could really help them along with some other things. Yeah, that's exactly right. And sometimes medications aren't helping as much as they could. And so in this way, it can be complementary as well. But anxiety is one of the main reasons that people come to work with me, as well as insomnia. And I imagine you've been seeing more of that these days. Yes, with the pandemic, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think anxiety is something that's, you know, really common. And it's actually something commonly that we see amongst infertility patients. And one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on, because I know this could be so helpful and so beneficial for those who are on a fertility journey. Do you know of any research that has shown that meditation could be beneficial for those who are trying to conceive? There are, I think, three or four studies that I was able to find because I knew I was going to be talking to you today. And what's interesting is, so these are fairly large control clinical trials that were done at university settings, and they had mindfulness-based interventions. And so what they found in the short term as well as long term was what they called increase in infertility self-efficacy. And they called really this significant decrease in a sense of defeat, decreases in sense of internal and external shame. And the people that were participating in the meditation mindfulness arm also reported significantly less depression. They also reported significantly increased levels of self-compassion. And they followed this group through for seven years. And In general, the folks who were in the meditation arm, their reproductive outcomes improved. And regardless of whether their reproductive outcomes improved or not, this particular arm still had higher levels of self-compassion, lower levels of depression and anxiety. And so I think it is a very significant outcome, especially in such a challenging situation like infertility. And I think that's really important to highlight because 
you're mentioning that it helps to reduce anxiety. And we know from studies that one of the most common reasons that patients actually leave treatment, perhaps before they are successful, is actually for symptoms of depression or symptoms of anxiety and just the mental stress and load of it all. And so that, to me, I think would be such a beneficial addition to patients who are going through infertility treatment or perhaps they haven't got into treatment yet. And I'm a real big advocate for starting these kind of practices early because, you know, as I mentioned before, we often are not treating things until we have the migraines, until we have the serious anxiety. But understanding that something like infertility brings anxiety to almost all patients. It's estimated even 60% may be dealing with some type of depression. And so I think this is something that every patient could benefit from. Yes. And how could one not experience depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms is how I see it because it is such a challenging situation. And I wholeheartedly agree. I couldn't think of a better way or a better accompaniment to infertility treatment than meditation and mindfulness practices. And I think there's so much to be gained. And, you know, the thing about integrative practices, I think that's always, you know, so interesting to me is that there's no risk right? (laughs) There's no risk. Yes, there are no side effects. (laughs) We're always worried about, should I take this medication or should I do this? The risk here is zero. The only thing you're going to be doing is spending a little bit of time investment to do it. How can beginners start? Because I think people are overwhelmed. A good way to start would just be to be open and curious. And then from there, start to see what might show up for you. So, you know, there are lots of really great apps to start with. That might be one place to start, especially if you'd like to have a guided meditation. If you are not the kind who wants to sit down for a guided meditation, or if your energy level is just too high, that's okay. Then start to see if you can just take a mindful walk outside. And so that means no AirPods and really just look, listen, smell, using all of our senses, bringing ourselves back into this present moment. I also teach breath work as well. So a lot of times I don't just start my students off with a sitting meditation. They're just really not able to do that. If they are, I think that's fantastic. Noticing what's showing up. And noticing what you would like to be open and curious to is always a good place to start. And so perhaps it's just sitting down for two minutes and noticing the breath. Even that can have a huge effect on our physiology and the psychology. Going outside for a walk for 10 minutes and just looking around, looking at the sky, looking at whatever is around and listening can also bring us into the present moment. And so those are ways if somebody doesn't feel like they want to sit down and meditate, those are some things that I get people started with and I've seen really good success with that. Of course, mindful movement like yoga, of course it was designed to help us meditate. And so that can also remove some of the excess energy that we might be carrying so that you can sit down, whether it's two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, or 30 minutes for a meditation practice. And then ultimately, I also teach a fully guided meditation that's known as Yoga Nidra, which is generally my most popular go-to first for first-time meditators. And Really, all you have to do is lie down and follow along. So you just have to lie down, try not to fall asleep and follow along. People will usually say, okay, I'll give that a try. Once we've established a little bit of a practice, then we move into some deeper practices like a mantra-based practice. Is yoga nindra similar to sort of like body scanning? I've done body scanning before. Of course, I don't know if it's more of like a guided practice. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? 
the lineage that I studied from, we can trace it all the way back to three or 4,000 years. And it does have a little bit of body scanning associated with it. And so it's a very particular way. It's an energetic practice. We use words because we use language, but it's an energetic practice more than anything else where we move from really just feeling maybe a little bit stressed when people show up to really going into deeper and deeper levels of relaxation. And so we also use intentions because we go into the subconscious. And so we use intentions and affirmations. We also use energy movements or prana movement. We do that. And then there is some body scanning and then there's breath work as well. So it's like a a combo of some of the more evidence-based meditation techniques that have been studied. And I think guided is really helpful. I'm a fan of that because a lot of times those who are newer and not as experienced, it's hard to really just focus on your breath and your mind keeps going, which I know is normal. And I want you to comment a little bit about that. But I feel like when it's guided, then I can kind of listen to the words and allow that to help me to stay on track. That's exactly right. And that's what brought me to Yoga Nidra all those many years ago too. And so one of the more common questions I get, I think you alluded to, which is Mm -hmm. how do I control my thoughts? How do I control my mind? Those are common ones that come to me. Mm -hmm. And really, we come back to the definition of meditation as a practice of mindfulness. And so as mindful beings, we're not here necessarily to judge whether we are having a great meditation or not. So we're just Mm -hmm. being open and present. And then ultimately, too, it's the self-discovery, not somebody telling you, but the discovery that you are not your thoughts. And when you recognize that you are not your thoughts because you can watch your thoughts, then you get to have a different relationship with your thoughts. And that's where the switch starts to come in. The thoughts are never the problem. It's our relationship with our thoughts for like I don't know, 25, 30 years, I thought I was my thoughts. I mean, I thought Mm -hmm. if I thought a thought, this is me, this is who I am. But that's not true at all. Mm -hmm. Um, It's because I get to actually witness my thoughts and I notice my thoughts, particularly in meditation. And I'm able to then come back to, like you said, the guidance or my daily other meditation is just a mantra. And so when we do that repeatedly and when we do that consistently, then It changes the neuronal pathways. It changes the way we start to Mm -hmm. maneuver through life, really, because most of the time it's our thoughts that are getting us in trouble about a situation rather than the situation itself. Yeah, I love that. You are not your thoughts. I've not really sat down and thought about it, but just having the understanding that you are not your thoughts, that's really powerful because a lot of times, like you said, we have all these thoughts running through our head and that kind of really weighs on you thinking about yourself in a certain manner, judging a situation in a certain manner. And so I think it's really important to pay attention to that. And the, you know, meditation practice, I think the other thing is it's not something that happens overnight. It's called practice. So it takes time. How much time should we spend on it when we first start? And then what kind of benefits do you see at the beginning? And then how does it evolve as you go deeper and deeper in with longer times to meditate? Yeah. So let's say who's listening is ultra busy. They have zero time in their day to dedicate to meditation. It would be a different approach for them rather than 
sometimes I'll have people who are like semi-retired, their kids are out of the house and they want to start to get deeper into meditation. I think those are two different beasts. So I would say, let's take probably who's listening to this. They're saying, I just don't have the time. And I'm here to say, I get that. And that's exactly the time when we should be meditating. So I generally recommend starting with just five minutes a day and generally in the mornings. It's a great time to meditate in the mornings. And most people can find five minutes. You either get to your office five minutes earlier or you wake up five minutes earlier. Or in the case of me, I would get to my office earlier and sit in my car. And so whichever way it works for you is fine, but it's consistency. That's the name of the game, right? And so um, this idea of just, it takes 21 days, that's not really true. Like we've debunked that. And so it Mm -hmm. takes as many days as it takes for you to feel comfortable with it. And five minutes a day for up to two, three, four weeks. And then really by the time somebody has been doing five minutes a day for a couple of weeks in my experience over the years, Mm -hmm. they're automatically increasing it themselves. They, if I'm following up with them in three or four weeks or if we're having a session another time, I'll see them and they'll say, oh yeah, I, when my timer went off, I wasn't ready. And so I started mm-hmm. to change it to 10 minutes or they've already moved it to 12 minutes. And so it's the consistency that's the key, not the intensity. So okay. let's say you said, oh, you know, I'm going to spend 30 minutes this weekend meditating. That's fine but you're going to get way more results if you spend five minutes every day meditating rather than 30 minutes once a week. That's really good to hear because I think sometimes we think like we need a lot of time, but if you can see a lot of benefits with five minutes a day, that means this is accessible to anybody. Anybody can find five minutes, as you said. Anybody can find five minutes, but you know, it's simple, but sometimes it's not easy. One of the traps Mm -hmm. that sometimes I'll see people get into is They'll say, okay, I'll do five minutes. And then they open up an app and then there are like 85 meditation options. Mm -hmm. And then they spend three minutes out of the five choosing which one they want. (laughs) They're after five minutes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is a common one that I'll hear back if I say this to my patients. And so one thing that I say is find one thing that you like. You don't have to skip from one meditation to the other that's an intellect and ego thought process that says Mm -hmm. it always has to be quote unquote fresh. That's not true at all. Mm -hmm. In fact, you'll go way deeper if you stick with one thing. And so when people do come to meditate with me, there is a a very specialized mantra-based meditation that again also dates back to thousands of years that I get to teach them. And when they get their mantra, everything switches. It was the same thing for me. Everything changed about my relationship to meditation. Then you only need two things. You just need to sit down and close your eyes. Mm -hmm. You don't need your phone. You don't need anything Mm -hmm. else. And so keeping it simple is the biggest key. And then once you like a meditation, and actually I have several on my YouTube channel that are evidence-based. Once you like a meditation, you can just stay with that meditation. There's no reason to skip from one meditation to the other. Yeah, that's one of the things I worry about these apps. I like the apps, but I know the phone in general is an issue. I find myself just reaching for my phone or certain apps when I feel a little bit anxious. And so then you end up in social media. Here you are, you came to meditate, but now you're in social media and you're scrolling, but you were supposed to be meditating. And so that's the hard part when you're using your phone for using the apps. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And that was my experience as well, which is why we just try to switch it out and just just Mm -hmm. move away from all of that. 
And do people usually have success sticking with one type? Do most people that you work with kind of gravitate to one type of meditation? Or is it possible that people may like certain types depending on the situation? It's definitely true that certain people do gravitate towards certain meditations, particularly based on the stressors they might be having in their lives. So if somebody feels like I can't sit here and think this mantra, and again, that's just another thought, by the way, but if that's a limiting thought that they're not willing to work past and that's okay, mm-hmm. then generally speaking, they will almost always gravitate towards the guided, like a yoga nidra meditation. And once they've done a nidra meditation, even just one time for most people, they're sold, they're hooked. Mm-hmm. I no longer have to do anything else because they see the results for themselves. I don't have to say, hey, you need to stick with it. They're like, I'm going to do this, 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 and this day because, oh my gosh, I was so much more focused. I was so much more productive. I slept better. I mean, the things that they start to notice, it's an experiential process, right? And so once you give somebody the initial experience, then it can take off by itself. And then almost everyone that I work with one-on-one, we do generally move into the mantra-based meditation because it's not necessarily all that practical to have a 30-minute guided meditation on an everyday basis. Although a lot of my clients do that and they will not give that up for anything because they Mm -hmm. see the results for themselves. But a lot of times they're ready to incorporate more than just one kind into their lives. Ideal, you're going to find a quiet space somewhere. But let's say for me, for example, I have patients that might be in a waiting room and they're anxious about an appointment, anxious about getting their blood drawn. And that could be, you know, seeing any doctor or in any situation that could bring up anxiety. Can you use this in those circumstances prior, like you're in the waiting room and I don't know, you have your headphones and you could be sitting there doing it? For sure. So you could also do breath work. That's one of the most common ways. And that is a kind of meditation. Mm -hmm. So whether you're doing like the 478 or really any other Mm -hmm. pranayama that you've noticed, that is generally what I would say. I use it too when I'm in stressful situations or I'm about to go into a stressful situation and I don't have the possibility of sitting there with my eyes closed. If I do, I'll do it. But in general, I think using your breath is a really great strength and a great practice to have. And you can learn that inside of a meditation practice. Yeah, it's something I've done too, going into a stressful situation. I've sat there and done four, seven, eight breathing, which I've talked about on the podcast before. I think those are powerful tools to be able to have. If you have an anxious situation, you're in a waiting room, or for my patients who are going to be doing shots, sometimes it does bring up a lot of symptoms of anxiety. And those are good practices to have and places to use your breath work. It really is, right? Because we're then changing the physiology rather than it mm-hmm. being a top-down approach, because it's very annoying when we're like, just calm down. <laughs> like, no, I, I can't. Yeah. But then you're using <laughs> the vagal nerve and you're activating your parasympathetic response and you don't even have to worry about the top-down approach anymore because that can really burn out fast. What kind of response do you get from your clients? I want to hear a little bit about the yoga nidra. What do they say about the experience and what is it like? They can have a variety of experiences, right? And so the thing is, there's not 
any definition for a good meditation or a bad meditation. So when we think of it that way, we just think of it as being experiences that you can have during meditation. And I will tell you there are four valid experiences during meditation. So one of the things can be you're listening to the guidance. That's a valid experience during meditation. The second thing is you might fall asleep and that's valid. When you are exhausted, your body will take the rest and that's perfectly fine. And the third thing is you might feel really restless and you might have a lot of thoughts. That is a valid experience during meditation. All of those benefits that I mentioned, they are not negated if you feel like you're having a lot of thoughts and you're restless. So that's a really nice thing. And the fourth Mm -hmm. thing is we can be in an altered state of consciousness as well. So there are all kinds of different names for it. Turiya, the gap, glimpsing the soul, all of those things, right? Because originally the ancient yogis and rishis, when they created this powerful set of tools, it wasn't for migraines. It wasn't mm-hmm. for anxiety, even though those are, of course, the spin-off side effects. It was really to have respite from the human condition in a way, in that the brain is constantly looking for outward external stimulation, external mm-hmm. validation, all of the things that the ego and the intellect get to control. And the ego and the intellect are not bad things. You and I, we need them. We absolutely need them. But when they're in charge... Sometimes we get to lead lives that potentially has more suffering than it needs to have. And so ultimately, it isn't the only goal of meditation is to reach these different states of consciousness or bliss consciousness or all these different names for it. But almost all of my clients and students that I work with, they will have their own version of that experience, which is what keeps them meditating. I do guided meditations, like if I can't sleep. And sometimes, honestly, I don't go back to sleep, but I find myself in this state between awake and asleep when I do it. Mm -hmm. So I feel at least I'm getting some element of rest there. Even if I don't fall back to sleep, it's still a restful state rather than, you know, you're having trouble sleeping. You wake up, you start doing stuff on your computer or your phone. It can be a great way to just help you to at least relax. That's exactly right. And we know that with a meditation like a nidra, for example, if you had an EEG machine on you, when you were feeling that relaxed, you were in a very programmable, very relaxed, lower energy state in those alpha waves. And then you could even during meditation be in, you know, like those delta waves and those theta waves, those are incredibly rejuvenative and relaxing. So uh, the restoration that you're getting is way more than if you had gotten up and decided to work on your laptop or something. A lot of people do have difficulty sleeping, I'm finding. And is this something that you can do close to sleep or does it matter if you did it in the morning? Is it still something that's going to benefit your sleep later in the day? Yeah, most people do find that it will still benefit them even during the day as well as the night. And a lot of it is because we have gotten that deep reset and that deep rest and the brain is almost able to understand how to get back there. I have a client who is a pathologist and she sets her own schedule through the days. And so she told me a couple of weeks ago that she discovered that if she does her nidra like around one o'clock, like she'll eat lunch or very light lunch and then she'll do a nidra. Then she's like, I swear I have two days. I have two days out of every day. She's like, feels like I just woke up from a deep sleep. And this is what she does. So she's set aside 30 minutes. Everybody in her office knows. And she's able to do this. Now you might not be able to do this. And our listeners might not be able to mm-hmm. do this. Maybe you only have 10 minutes. But she also noticed that she was able to fall asleep faster, quicker, and feel better in the mornings. And that's been my experience mm-hmm. as well. And so the sleep part, you can notice that so long as you're consistent with a meditation routine. 
And sometimes people do meditate a little closer to bedtime, but it's a little better if you're not meditating very close to bedtime mm-hmm. because the process of meditation is to take you into these deeper states. Right. Not just fall asleep. <laughs> you can. I have some folks who that's why they came to me and mm-hmm. Initially, we have to fix that before we do anything else. So we generally work on fixing the sleep and then we go from there. Most of the women and couples that are listening are on the fertility journey. And unfortunately, along with that, as I discussed earlier, is a lot of stress that comes with it. There's the stress of infertility has actually been compared to the stress of receiving a cancer diagnosis. And to say that those women have a lot to deal with as an understatement. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit today about emotional resilience and why this might be important for those who are struggling. What does emotional resilience mean? When I think of emotional resilience, I think of being able to move with grace through very challenging situations while holding a lot of self-compassion for ourselves. And we know that when there is high levels of self-compassion, that increases resilience, whether it's psychological, emotional, or physical resilience. And so that's how I think of emotional resilience. Yeah, I think it's important because it's a stressful situation. You need to really be able to take care of yourself, self-preserve, because it's a situation that we don't have a lot of control of. And so I think being able to cultivate more more resilience can be important. Is it possible for someone to become more emotionally resilient? 100%, yes. First, it starts with awareness. And if we were to say we are only products of our conditioning, social conditioning, societal conditioning, then it would be almost like we're taught, depending on what your formal education was, to just stuff everything down. Don't worry about it. Don't feel it. And so then Mm -hmm. we end up spending enormous amounts of energy, keeping ourselves distracted, keeping ourselves so busy that we don't have to deal with the emotions. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, when there's some awareness of this is uncomfortable, this is discomfort, if we even allow ourselves to feel that, it actually takes some of the power for the emotional charge out immediately. And that's really what mindfulness is. It is Mm -hmm. the awareness. And so once you have the awareness, then you have the power to take the next step and the next step. And a lot of people describe emotional freedom or emotional resilience as being a tunnel. And we have to go through the tunnel in order to come out. And so I teach inside my group program a whole month on just emotional well-being, emotional resilience. And it really comes from a lot of ancient Ayurvedic, not just ideas, but also modern representations of what those ancient sages were really thinking, because emotional well-being is one of the major pillars of well-being in Ayurveda. And so there are many techniques that we can use. There are many ways we can think of our emotions and how we can deal with our emotions in a healthy way. As you mentioned, mindfulness is so important. It's something I realize that I was always in the future or the past for so many years. Me too. Yeah. Right? I I wouldn't say I lost my memory, but I would say like I wasn't even there. So how could I remember it? Mm-hmm. Because I was so worried. I always think like when it's not comfortable, you're just thinking, okay, once I get to this thing, I'm going to feel better. Let me not think about where I am right now. Let me go to the future. Once I get to this, it's going to be better. Or let me think about what happened before it's a fond time. And so you end up just never present. And it's a hard thing to have that realization. That's something that I discovered when I went to, you know, a mindfulness-based stress reduction course. It sounds like a strange 
thing. Of, of course I'm here. What are you talking about? I'm not present, but not really paying attention to what's going on. That was like, wow, I am not paying attention at all to what's happening and just trying to breeze through it. And I think a lot of those who are on fertility journey, the same thing, because it's painful to be in a certain spot and like just be aware of the moment as you were talking about working through those emotions being important. Yeah. And I think there's a balance to be struck here. So when we're going through a very challenging situation, emotionally, physically, mentally, whatever it is, it's okay to switch into autopilot every now and then. There's nothing wrong with that. We do need to preserve some amount of our Mm -hmm. energy. But on the other hand, when it is comfortable taking out that journal, when it is comfortable having that difficult conversation, when it is comfortable, meaning when there's space, because there actually will probably never be comfort there. Mm -hmm. But knowing that the discomfort things that are coming up, particularly in white space, like allowing white space to be there, allowing there to be some way for us to metabolize and release what's no longer helping us can help us show up for ourselves differently, show up for our treatments differently, show up for really the world a lot differently and probably way more authentically. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it also allows us to pay attention to the the little things that are going on that we just breeze through and not really knowing how much you enjoy drinking this drink you're drinking, how much you enjoy the feel of the water on your body in the shower, just really paying attention to the small things that can actually bring you some kind of joy. That's exactly right. Yeah. We miss out on all that if we're on autopilot. Totally. Are there certain steps that people can go by or use to help them to build more resilience? I think it really begins with self-compassion. I know I said this already, but the studies back this up as well. And so beginning to notice that really mean inner critic is a great first step to self-compassion because we don't know how much that inner critic is talking to us until we start to recognize that inner critic a little bit. And so noticing the inner critic, having some compassion for the inner critic because he or she was there all these years and continues to be here all these years because he or she thought they could protect us in some way. Mm -hmm. And so having some compassion, but also distancing ourselves from this isn't actually who I am. This is externally derived in some way and that these are all things that maybe I either heard or thought about myself Mm -hmm. and then they keep showing up. And so bringing back self-compassion, self-love, self-grace is one of the biggest markers, even more so than self-esteem, even more so than mindfulness of resilience. Yeah, I think so many of us have those and they've been around for years. They keep telling us the same things until you realize like, wait, wait a minute, I'm actually not like that. How do you find the power to not turn it off because I don't think it goes away, but how do you find the power to just say, no, that's not me? Yeah. So again, it comes back to mindfulness, right? So you don't judge. You don't have to judge Mm -hmm. this inner voice, inner critic. You can just stay curious about this and Mm -hmm. you can recognize that isn't me. And I actually tell patients, clients to just bring awareness in and it automatically transforms. And so when we have the awareness, okay, I'm hearing all these negative thoughts. It's not who I am. Let me move into what I want to do. What happens is energy always follows attention. 
And so it depends on where we put our attention. So we're not going to fight with this inner critic. That's not even the point. We're not going to control this inner critic. We're really just going to put our attention on the task that we were doing, whether it was going up to speak or writing this thing or going to see this next appointment or whatever it is. We really just change the energy by changing our attention. And so the less attention we pay to something, the less power it has. I think that's really powerful. This whole world of mindfulness, I really didn't learn about it until probably, what, like five, six years ago. And then suddenly I was like, oh my gosh, wow, how did I not know about all of this? How did I not realize that I was just walking through life, not paying attention, and then having the inner critic there just telling me things and the power that you can derive from having changing that experience, it's, it's a really powerful experience. It really is. I agree. Are there any other challenges that beginners may face or things that kind of can derail them from the practice? Because a lot of people start with great intentions. They have, hey, this is where I'm going to meditate. This is what I'm going to do. And then all of a sudden they fall off. What kind of things do we watch out for? The first thing is, how can we be really good at something, even though there's not a good meditation? How can we feel or be really good at something that's totally new? We can't. Nothing that we've tried for the first time turns out to be amazing. So having some realistic expectations, knowing that it's going to feel challenging, knowing that um, you're going to have thoughts like, this is useless, this is boring, whatever it is. There's so many thoughts that can show up. This is a waste of my time. So many Mm -hmm. thoughts that can show up. And then just saying, okay, actually, I looked at the evidence. I made a decision to meditate for five minutes today and I hear all these thoughts. But the thing is, I'm going to honor my decision. And just doing that with some amount of consistency is going to start to really just show up in way different arenas than just you sitting down or whatever for five minutes. So noticing that there's going to be some challenges, accepting the challenges, and still honoring your decision, whatever it is you make, whether it's two minutes a day, five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, it really doesn't matter. But recognizing that and then just staying consistent with it. And that does take a little bit of discipline. But obviously, once a habit is established, discipline really doesn't need to come back into play in general. And I think we think it should be easy, right? As I said, we think like this should just be easy. So if it's not easy for you, are like, oh, no, I'm not going to do this. Never mind. I can't do it. Because we, we know certain other activities might be more difficult. And we, it takes practice to go learn a new sport or go learn a language. But meditation, I think we underestimate that it does take practice. It takes time. It definitely takes practice. Yeah, that's right. And that's why I... I'm still in business, even though there are 35 apps and Mm -hmm. hundreds of books written about it. And it really is that human to human connection that can be a huge difference. And so finding a partner, finding a coach, finding a teacher, just at least initially can make a huge difference, especially in a lifelong practice, if that's what you decide you want to do. And that's what made the difference for me is to find a teacher and to find a community. Without that, I was really just on my own and struggling a lot more than I needed to. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Is there a different energy that comes with working with somebody or if you have a partner or a group, is that something where you may experience it differently? I think so. And I've seen that and I've seen lots and lots of people say that as well. We are a hive species, right? We learn from each other. And so even online, when we with COVID, I took some of my yoga nidra practices that I was doing locally online. And at first I was like, oh, this is a terrible idea. It's what my brain Mm -hmm. said initially. But even that first 
one was so powerful. And over the years, whatever it's been, two plus years, mm -hmm. I've been doing them almost exclusively all online because it works so incredibly well. And there is a different energy when there are 10 people that are meditating together, for example, live. There's definitely a different energy. I would imagine because I've done some with in the mindfulness based stress reduction course. It's definitely different there than when you're at home on your own. How can listeners connect with you and be a part of some of the groups that you have? The easiest and fastest is my YouTube channel. And if you just go on YouTube and you type in my name, Dr. Rashmi Shram, it comes up. I have at least four evidence-based meditations that are completely free that people can try. I have some FAQs about meditation in there as well, if anybody wants to watch those. I also have a paid on-demand Yoga Nidra program that I'm running right now. And people can have access for 90 days to two live meditations with me. I also support them through email and they get six really high value practices with different intentions, different affirmations that, that they can try. And then if they want more support, I do a group program that's actually about to open in May and it's called The Power Within. And we really incorporate meditation, Ayurveda, mindfulness, breath work, so much of what you and I talked about, but we do it in significant depth. And that is a really great way. And I, it's only for women. The Power Within is only for women. And then of course, I also work one-on-one. -on -one. Those are just a handful of people that I work with one-on-one. -on -one. And so I would love to connect with anybody that's ready to connect. And we'll put all of that in the show notes. If someone listening would like to connect with you and be part of some of the programs that you offer, it's a great way to start and just learn how to get this process going. Because as we spoke about, there's so many benefits to be had here, especially for those who are on the fertility journey. I think it's invaluable to start working with somebody that can help you on this journey. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. So I always ask my guests how they cultivate joy in their life, because I think that it's really important to find ways, small ways you can cultivate joy, even if it's little things in your daily life, because oftentimes, as we talked about, we kind of just breeze by things and don't pay attention to our daily lives. How do you cultivate joy in your life? I do it very deliberately, I'll tell you, because I teach about this as well. So I don't want to be a hypocrite. So I do it very deliberately. And so I start off every day with a meditation practice, no matter what that day is going to bring. I usually wake up early enough before everybody else is up and about so I can do meditation. That gives me a sense of connection and groundedness right away, which to me brings me joy. Every morning, I'm also walking my dog. This is not a long walk, but it's as soon as the sun comes up, sometimes depending if the sun's not up yet, but it's 15 minutes. And I spend those 15 minutes very deliberately in awe and wonder. I bring deliberately to mind that, oh my gosh, like the atoms in my body are the same ones that were like in the stars 5 billion years ago and the stars mm -hmm. were exploding. I am actually wow. stardust and I am on this planet walking here and this planet is spinning at this crazy speed. My mind can't even get its head around and I'm connected to all these beings. This is incredible. Like I mm -hmm. bring those thoughts deliberately even though my brain wants to give me all these really garbage thoughts. And so I've been able to train that. And so I spend 15 minutes every morning on my walk with my dog, really practicing awe, which will then bring me wonder. And then mm -hmm. we know some of the research on that is pretty incredible. And then throughout my day, if I have 
tiny little gaps, um, which I do tend to have tiny little gaps. Mm -hmm. I'll usually just do either a breathwork exercise or I'll do some kind of heart opening yoga pose. I steal like three or four Mm -hmm. minutes sometimes. And so in that way, and then always reconnecting back with my family, always reconnecting back at the end of the day is also really important for me, particularly with my partner. And so that's how I bring joy into my everyday life. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's a a wonderful perspective to just really pay attention to the awe of the universe because, yeah, there's much to wonder about and much to be amazed by every day that, again, we just pass by all the things that are going on and we're just not paying attention. And I think that nature can definitely bring that to us. Seeing all the wonders of nature, I think, is really important. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. How else can listeners connect with you on social media? I am very active on Instagram and my handle there is just dr period and then my name r-a-s-h-m-i you know s-c-h-r-e-m-m dr rashmi shram my website is optimalwellnessmd.org i'm also on linkedin same name as well as facebook same name so i'd love to connect yeah thank you we'll put all that in the show notes thank you so much for being here today it was a pleasure speaking with you it has been all my pleasure thank you the fertility journeys podcast thank you so much for listening today if you enjoy the podcast please leave us a review or tag us on Instagram at Fertility Journeys Podcast. This will help us to spread awareness and reach new listeners. Episodes drop every week, and you can learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.